Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety claims professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Here is your host, Michael Stover. Welcome, everyone, to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group here at Wright Constable and Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. And today, I'm joined by my law partner, George Backrack. George just got his second dose of the COVID vaccine, so he won't be infecting any of us, hopefully. Thanks for, thanks for that, George. As always, we like to uh, open our episodes with a big thank you to everyone for your support of Surety Today. We ask that you um, pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in or checking out one of our podcasts. Remember, uh, as always, you can listen to one of our prior Surety Today episodes anytime from um, any one of our multiple locations on our Surety Today page on our website at wcslaw.com, as a podcast at Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean. Just search for uh, Surety Today and on our micro site at suretytoday.net. As always, we've uh, muted the line during the presentation to avoid the background noise, and uh, we'll unmute the line at the end for any questions. Today, George and I will be discussing the restatement of the law third, surety shipping guarantee. Uh, There are times in certain cases and certain jurisdictions when there's no statute, rule, regulation, or case law that supports what the surety wants to do, whether it's taking an action or defending against a claim, in those situations, you can always turn to the restatement. Therefore, today, uh, we're going to highlight some of the more important restatement concepts and explain how they may assist you in taking a supportable position in a matter when the law of the particular jurisdiction is either non-existent or or unclear. Uh, We'll also provide some insight in understanding the terminology and the layout of the restatement, which uh, can be a little cumbersome to say the least. So this presentation is our attempt to introduce some of you to the restatement of, 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 uh, of the law third, suretyship and guarantee, or to assist those who already know of its existence to help you better understand what it contains and how it can be useful in your job. Unfortunately, this is, a, of course, a huge task and, and impossible to complete you know, in our 30 minutes. So we'll touch on the highlights and, and help you find other resources to increase your understanding and appreciation of the restatement of suretyship. The primary resource that we use for this presentation can be found in a paper that George and uh, one of our former partners, Jason Potter, uh, presented at the Northeast Surety and Fidelity Claims Conference in September of 2016. The paper was entitled, A Primer for the Restatement of the Law, Suretyship and Guarantee. Uh, A copy of the paper will be made available on the Wright Constable and Scheme website and uh, we highly recommend that you download a copy when you get a chance and keep it uh, handy as a reference tool. It's a very detailed paper. There's a lot of footnotes um, and a lot of references to uh, various aspects of the restatement, so it's a very valuable thing, I think, to have around. Of course, uh, there are several other sources or resources on this topic that are referenced in the Northeast paper, including a paper written by two surety practitioners who were actually involved with the drafting of the restatement of suretyship itself, Scott Leo and Daniel Mungle, Jr. Uh, That paper was entitled The Restatement of Suretyship and Guarantee, a Translation for the Practitioner. That's kind of funny. 
for the American Bar Association in 2005. So the restatement of suretyship, just to do a little, little background, a little history, uh, is a product of the esteemed American Law Institute. The intent of the restatement of suretyship was to clearly enumerate the basic black letter common law and underlying principles of suretyship. It was drafted with the input of uh, some very important people in the surety industry, and um, in addition to Mr. Leo and Mr. Mungle, various other representatives of the surety industry through the ABA TIPS Fidelity Surety Law Committee uh, participated in the drafting of the restatement, such as Jim Black, uh, former head of the surety claims for F&D, uh, Patrick J. J. O'Connor, uh, one of the principal authors of the Bruner and O'Connor Treatise on Construction Law. So they had some pretty, um, some pretty good folks from the surety side involved with drafting uh, and, and creating this uh, restatement. The restatement itself was published in 1996, although titled Restatement of the Law Third, there actually was no real first or second restatement of suretyship. The first restatement that, that involved suretyship was published in 1941, and it was titled The Restatement of Security. Uh, and of course, that, that addressed a number of subjects, including suretyship. The effort leading up to the, the publishing of the restatement of suretyship began in 1989 and was initially pushed not by the surety industry, but by commercial bankers looking for more clarity uh, in, in financial instrument guarantees. As demonstrated by the length of time involved between 1989 and 1996 when it was published, the process leading to the publishing of a new restatement of the law is long and arduous, deliberative and cautious. It involves a great deal of research, numerous drafts, revisions, meetings and discussions, as well as reviews and comments. And there are multiple, there, there must have been 20 people involved with the drafting of this thing. In the end, the, the final product of the restatement of suretyship is, is a very helpful and useful uh, recitation of surety law. It's been cited in over 767 cases and, and has been discussed in over 2,000 secondary sources. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to George. What I want to do is to give you a little overview of the uh, restatement. The very first section in the restatement, section one, defines surety ship status in a way that is totally awkward for all of us surety practitioners. This is, this is partly due to the terms that are used in the definition. The terms in the restatement can be redefined to refer to the words that we all use. Now, the obligee is the obligee, but the principal obligor is the principle. The underlying obligation is the bonded contract between the obligee and the principle. The secondary obligor is the surety, which is secondarily liable for the principle's obligations to the obligee. And the secondary obligation is the bond provided by the surety and the principle to the obligee. So using our vernacular, Suretyship status is defined in section one of the restatement and would mean suretyship status arises whenever pursuant to the bond, the obligee has a claim against the surety as a result of the principal's failure to perform the bonded contract. The concept that the obligee may have a claim against the surety under the bond as a result of the principal's failure to perform its obligations to the obligee under the bonded contract is very familiar to all surety claims representatives and surety attorneys. The remainder of section one can also be translated into our language. First, to the extent that the principal performs the bonded contract, 
where the surety performs the bonded contract obligations under the bond, the obligee is not entitled to the performance of both of the obligations. Namely, if the principal performs the bonded contract, the obligee is not entitled to also obtain the surety's performance under the bond. Second, as between the principal and the surety, it is the principal who should perform the bonded contract obligation. If the surety performs the bonded contract obligations under the bond, it is the principal who should bear the cost of the surety's performance by the principal's reimbursement of the surety's cost of performance of the bonded contract. Now, none of these principles of suretyship should surprise any of us in the surety industry. But the obligee, the principal, and the judge in the courtroom you are facing may refuse to believe that the surety has rights and defenses, and the obligee and the principal have duties and obligations to the surety, and the restatement may help convince them that the surety's position is valid and supportable. The restatement goes on to define the contractual transactions that give rise to suretyship status. That definition includes the bonded contract between the obligee and the principal with their performance duties and obligations to each other, and then the separate bond serving as the secondary performance obligations from the principal and the surety to the obligee, with, again, the surety's obligations arising only in the event of the principal's failure to perform the bonded contract. However, the restatement makes it clear that suretyship status may be varied by contract among the principal, the surety, and the obligee. In the surety industry that we all know and love, those contracts include the indemnity agreement, the bonds, the underlying agreements, or the bonded contracts and subcontracts that are referred to in the bonds and others. Nevertheless, the existence of those contracts does not lessen or diminish the substantive law importance of the restatement and its general principles of suretyship law. The restatement addresses all aspects of suretyship law. While the contracts among the parties set forth the agreed-upon rights of each, the restatement, restatement addresses a number of things. The obligee's rights against and duties to the surety under the bond, the surety's rights against and duties to the obligee under the bond, including the surety's defenses, and the surety's rights against the principal, including the surety's rights to require the principal to perform the underlying obligation, the bonded contract, or bear the cost of the surety's performance of the bonded contract under the bond, namely the reimbursement of the surety's loss. The surety's rights include enforcing the principal's duty of performance through exoneration and quiatimate, enforcing the, surety, the principal's duty to reimburse the surety's loss, and enforcing the surety's subrogation rights to the obligee's rights. When the surety needs support for its rights and defenses, the restatement can provide a source for that support in front of a court that may not understand or recognize the surety's extensive rights. Today, Mike and I will address four of the restatement topics that address the surety's rights, duties, and defenses. The first topic is the rights and duties between the obligee and the surety. The obligee has no claim against the surety or the bond unless the principal fails to perform and is in default under the bonded contract. The principal owes the first performance of the bonded contract to the obligee. The obligee is entitled to one performance of the bonded contract, either by the principal or upon the principal's failure to perform by the surety under the bond. 
The surety's duties to the obligee are determined by the terms of the bond, but subject to the surety's defenses to the obligee's claims. The second topic we'll talk generally about is the surety's defenses. The surety has a number of defenses against the obligee's claims. Importantly, with respect to the obligee's ability to actually enforce its rights against the surety and the bond, Section 12 of the restatement sets the factual and legal standards for when the surety alleges that the bond is void and of no effect because the surety was induced by and was justified in relying upon the obligee's fraudulent or material misrepresentations that led to the surety's execution of the bond in the first place. This is a rare event, but when or if it occurs, the surety can look to their statement for support. The surety also has its substantive defenses under the terms of the bond, which are also supported by the restatement's listing of the surety's defenses. These include the surety's rights to assert the principal's defenses to the obligee's claims under the bonded contract, including that the principal has performed the bonded contract or the obligee has failed to perform its obligations under the bonded contract. Also, the principal's claims against the obligee to reduce the surety's potential obligations under the bond. And finally, the surety's own defenses, either under the terms of the bond and the bonded contract or at law, including the surety's own set-off rights against the obligee. The restatement's list of surety defenses, including the obligee's release of the principal, the obligee's granting of time extensions or modifications to the bonded contract obligations and others, may be addressed under the terms of the contract or the bond. As a result, the obligee's actions and possibly the surety's defenses may be consented to, negated by, or waived by the surety under the terms of the bonded contract or the bond. Mike will discuss later two of the surety defenses, impairment of surety ship status and impairment of the surety's collateral. The third topic that is addressed is, is of course, the surety's rights of indemnity and reimbursement from the principal. The restatement addresses the surety's rights against the principal to require the principal to perform the underlying obligations of the bonded contract or reimburse the surety's cost of performing those obligations upon the principal's default. And we'll discuss some of this later. Fourth and finally for our discussion today, the restatement addresses the surety's subrogation rights, including the providing of support for the proposition in opposition to the Supreme Court's ruling in the Muncie Trust case that the principal's failure to perform the work covered by the performance bond and the principal's failure to pay a subs and suppliers covered by the payment bond are both defaults under the contract, namely for the purposes of the surety's exercise of its subrogation rights, performance bond losses and payment bond losses should be treated the same and not differently, and I'll discuss that later. Mike? Okay, George, thanks. Um, all right, so I'm going to dive in here to um, some of the surety defenses. And the restatement, as George mentioned, the restatement of surety service acknowledges that as between the principal and the surety, it's the principal who ought to perform or bear the cost of performance of the underlying bonded obligation. And many uh, surety ship defenses arise because of the duties that the principal has to the surety. Accordingly, the restatement recognizes that if after the bond is issued, the obligee doesn't act that changes the risk to the surety that the principal will not perform the underlying obligation, there is the potential for a loss to the surety. 
the sections 37 through 49 of the restatement of suretyship address the surety's relationship with the obligee when the obligee acts in a fashion that changes the surety's risk. This change to risk can come up in a variety of ways. As George touched on, um, you can have the release of the principal by the obligee. The obligee can overpay the principal. The obligee can, it can extend the principal's uh, obligations or time of performance without the consent of the surety and, and a whole host of other things that are addressed in the restatement and, and that we recognize uh, in various jurisdictions throughout the country. The restatement does a very good job of spelling out these various impacts to the surety that the obligee can cause and the defenses that such actions can create. And one of the, one of the, the things about the, about the restatement that's, that's interesting and helpful is that you know, they, they have the general statement of what the law is and then underneath they have comments. So the drafters of the restatement have various comments about certain circumstances and situations within the general rule and then they have illustrations that help to sort of give examples of what the, the general rule means and what some of the, the various, um, you know, minute aspects of it can, can how it can affect the, uh, the, the defense. So it's very helpful to be able to look through the restatement and see you may find uh, an illustration or a comment that's exactly on point with what your situation is. So first, let's look at, at Section 37.1, titled Impairment of Suretyship. In Section 37, the restatement states that an obligee's action that increases the surety's risk of loss by increasing the surety's potential cost of performance under the bond or by decreasing the surety's potential ability to require the principal to be liable for the cost of performance of the bonded contract is an impairment of suretyship status that can justify discharge of the surety. So, for example, in, in National Surety Corporations versus United States, a uh, Federal Circuit case, 1997, the court, citing Section 37 of the restatement, held that when the principal was, was paid retainage by the obligee in violation of the terms of the bonded contract, the surety was discharged to the extent of the surety's injury. Similarly, in, in Pennsylvania, National Mutual Casualty Insurance Company versus City of Pine Bluff, an Eighth Circuit case, 2004, the court, citing uh, uh, Section 37 of the restatement, held that the obligee that paid the principal after receiving notice from the surety that the principal was in default was liable to the surety for losses incurred by the surety after issuing the notice of default. So there's, there's a number of, uh, of, as I said, there's a number of ways that, that this impairment of suretyship status can occur and, and Section 37 through 49 address those specifically. Another aspect of, of Section 37 of the restatement is that it recognizes that the surety not only has a defense against an obligee, but it also may have an affirmative claim against the obligee. And that, that comes up, I've, I've had it come up a couple of times where, where the, the obligee will say, well, you know, I didn't sign the bond, the bond's not a contract with me. Certainly the federal government takes that position uh, that the bond is not a contract in which the, the government can be held liable. So, but there are circumstances where liability can arise because of the actions of the surety, and so uh, the restatement is a good place to turn for that. So in Section 37, uh, Comment D notes that when, when an obligee impairs the suretyship status before performance is required under the bond, well, discharge is the surety's general remedy. Uh, but if, on the other hand, the impairment occurs after performance under the bond, it's too late for the surety to assert the discharge of its duty. 
Accordingly, Section 37.4 gives the surety a claim against the obligee to the extent that the impairment of suretyship status would have discharged the surety. Similarly, if the impairment of suretyship status occurs before performance of the secondary obligation, but the surety performs without knowledge of it, the surety is harmed, and but for the operation of this section and the creation of the claim against the obligee, the obligee would receive a windfall. And there was a case um, out of Virginia where the, where the obligee, was, the principal was doing underground piping work, and the obligee was, was obligated under the contract to inspect the pipe as it was installed, and it was paying based on the pipe that was installed. The surety uh, got in after the default and was, it was doing a takeover to complete the work, and then started to realize that they didn't inspect any of the piping. And, and so they had overpaid, and the surety went forward and completed the work, and then filed suit against the obligee because it failed to, um, to perform its obligations under the, under the contract and caused damage to the surety by having to redo all the work that had been paid for when it wasn't done right in the first place. So, um, you know, the restatement can help you with, with that kind of a situation. Um, and, and one thing it, it notes in, in um, Section 17, Comment A, in a sense, suretyship status creates two implied contracts, one between the surety and the principal, the other between the surety and the obligee. So you can, you can look to these provisions in the restatement to help with the issue of maybe in a situation where you have to have an affirmative claim against the obligee. Um, another impairment is impairment of collateral. Section 42 of the restatement discusses the obligee's impairment of collateral when the underlying obligation is secured by collateral. So in the contract bond surety context, the collateral for the bonded contract is the obligee's agreement to pay the contract funds from the bonded contract to the principal for the principal's performance of the work or to the surety if the principal defaults and the surety is then obligated to perform, uh, whether it's to pay for the performance or whether it's to pay subs and suppliers. Uh, comment A to Section 42 of the Restatement of Suretyship notes that when the surety is subrogated to the rights of the obligee with respect to the underlying obligation, the collateral protects the surety, and it's essentially the, the surety's security. Thus, when the obligee impairs the value of the collateral, the obligee impairs the ability of a surety to perform and to recover under the principal, um, or to recover from the principal. Accordingly, the surety can be discharged uh, to the extent of the impairment of collateral. So let's um, also talk about the surety's right of reimbursement. It's, it's, a, it's rare that a surety does not have a pretty good indemnity agreement that provides a surety with indemnity and reimbursement rights against the principal and possibly other indemnitors. The restatement not only defines the surety's right uh, and principal's obligation to reimburse the surety, but also supports the surety's ability to enforce its reimbursement rights. Because it is the, the principal's obligation to either perform the underlying obligation in the bonded contract or reimburse the surety for its cost of performance, the principal's failure to perform is critical to the surety and it may be able to uh, allow the, the surety to perform. So in the surety industry, we see many cases where the surety is seeking injunctive and other relief to obtain specific performance of its collateral demand and other indemnity agreement rights to uh, lien and, and the principal's property to prevent the principal from transferring its property, et cetera. These surety rights, which may be contractual provisions in the indemnity agreement, are also supported and supplemented by the restatement. The restatement specifically states that the surety is entitled to relief that will properly protect its rights 
with respect to the principal's duty of performance, both the performance of the bonded contract and the obligation to reimburse the surety for its losses. The relief that the restatement um, discusses includes the basic common law remedies of exoneration and quiatement that have found their way into most indemnity agreements. So a lot of jurisdictions have really underdeveloped law on exoneration and quiatement. So you can look to the restatement to help with that. Of course, exoneration it, it means that uh, means the removal of a burden, charge, responsibility, or duty. It's a fundamental principle of suretyship that before paying the debt, the surety may call upon the principal to exonerate him by discharging it. The surety is not obligated to make inroads into its own resources when the loss must, in the end, fall upon the principal. If the principal has no defense of its duty of performance of the underlying obligation, the surety is entitled to appropriate relief to protect the surety's interest. We attempt means because he fears or apprehends. The relief is to accomplish the ends of precautionary justice and apply to prevent wrongs or anticipated mischiefs and not merely to re uh, redress them when they're already done. The surety seeks quiatimate relief due to the fear of some future probable injury to its rights or interests and not because an injury has already occurred. That fear is the fact that the principal may not reimburse the surety for the surety's cost of performance and loss. The relief is present and immediate remedy for the surety, including the payment of money or providing of adequate security uh, for the current principal's breach of its duty to protect and reimburse the surety from what has become an expected loss under the bond. Obviously, the defenses that we're discussing today and that are in the restatement, um, not every action of an obligee uh, that it may take can give, will give rise to a defense, but the restatement recognizes that in those situations where the obligee um, might take action that could discharge the surety, um, that the, the provisions in the, in the restatement can be altered or changed by the contract of the parties, by applicable law, et cetera. So the fact that it's in the restatement doesn't necessarily mean that the parties haven't um, altered those provisions. So you've got to be aware of that when you're looking at defenses. George? Finally, I want to discuss the surety subrogation rights and the surety's rights to return performance under the restatement. The surety's rights of reimbursement against the principal extend to the surety's subrogation rights, including the surety's subrogation to the rights of the obligee named in the bond. From the surety's standpoint, there are four essential elements to the surety's successful assertion of its subrogation rights. An underlying obligation of the principal to the obligee, which is the bonded contract, the failure of the principal to perform that underlying obligation, the bonded contract, rights in the obligee arising from the principal's default and failure to perform, and the performance by the surety pursuant to its suretyship obligations, namely the bond, of the underlying obligation, namely the bonded contract, which the principal failed to perform. We will only address one section of the restatement, section 31, because both the Northeast paper, which uh, is our paper on our website, and especially something that Scott Leal wrote, chapter two in the book, The Contract Bond Surety Sub Subrogation Rights, and, and chapter two is entitled, The Treatment of the Fundamental Principles of the Surety Subrogation Rights in the Restatement of the Law. It truly covers the surety subrogation rights in more detail. In fact, Scott Leo's chapter is the gold standard in analyzing the restatement's treatment of the surety subrogation rights. Earlier sections uh, before section 31 
cover the issues of when the surety has subrogation rights, the rights the surety obtains through subrogation, the priorities the surety obtains through subrogation, and other issues. Section 31 of the restatement is important because it addresses the surety's right of return performance from the obligee, namely the payment of the bonded contract funds. It states that upon the principal's default under the contract, the obligee must then pay all of the bonded contract funds to the surety for its performance under the bond of the principal's obligations that the principal failed to perform under the bonded contract. Now, the 1947 Muncie Trust case, which occurred before the restatement was published, the restatement third, allowed the obligee to keep and use through set-off the bonded contract funds for other principal debts owed to the obligee that were not related to the principal's performance of the bonded contract when the surety only had performance bond losses. This result thus initiated the unwarranted distinction between the subrogation rights of a performance bond surety and a payment bond surety to the bonded contract funds. Section 31 of the restatement says that there should be no such distinction. The principal's failure to perform includes both the principal's failure to perform the bonded contract work and the principal's failure to pay its subcontractors and suppliers on the bonded contract. Therefore, according to the restatement, the Muncie Trust case was wrongly decided. There is nowhere else in the law of suretyship so clearly that so clearly states this proposition. Section 31 must be used to hopefully prevent the obligee from keeping and using the bonded contract funds to the surety's detriment. They should be paid to reduce the surety's performance and payment bond losses. If the bonded contract is for a million dollars, when the smoke clears after the principal's default, and the surety's performance under either or both the performance bond and the payment bond, the obligee should have to pay the full amount of the million dollars and not retain a portion of it for the obligee's own use. Section 31 of the restatement may help the surety get to that result. So we've covered a lot of ground without covering a lot of specifics. And if you really want to get into the specifics, again, I suggest our paper uh, which is very detailed. Um, once you get your head and hands on it uh, and, and around the definitions used by the restatement, it really makes some sense. Mike? All right, let, let me um, open up the line, hopefully. Hello? Do we have any questions today? Anybody have any questions? This is Paul Eves. I can hear there is some background noise, um, but I have no questions. It's good for <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety dash today.